I believe that you have to have a really strong team and you have to constantly invest in this and you have to uh, recruit really talented people and you have to trust them. Uh, that is not the way Republicans have been operating the government. And we're going to go through it again on climate if we don't learn from this. I'm extrapolating that to the podcast. I'm assuming you hang out with Shane and I because we are those talented people that you're talking yes. about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to hear that Shane, to be clear, I'm happy to hear that Shane wants to elevate experts and scientists and believes, I, we all know he believes in climate change. That is, you know, a, a brave stance, unfortunately, in the Republican Party. Climate change didn't stop while the world turned its attention to the coronavirus. But can leaders tackle more than one crisis? Will lawmakers use the next stimulus bill to accelerate the green economy as part of a COVID-19 recovery? And if so, when and how? Or will climate-friendly stimulus measures fall by the wayside, at least for now? We discuss on this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And on the line, we have Shane Skelton, our Republican, a partner at S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. And we have Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. Well, we are well into this pandemic and we are weeks into stay-at-home orders here in California. I actually heard my local KCRW uh, music DJ Ann Litt say this morning something along the lines of, it's 30 days, half September, April, June, and November. All the rest have 31 except March, which lasts forever. But I understand it's April now. It's just hard to tell because all the days are blending together. Brandon, how are you holding up? I know you're an extrovert, so are you just going crazy? Definitely. Like quarantined for a long time uh, because I may have picked it up in, in New York, as our listeners know. So I'm beyond the 14 days of symptoms and I'm probably immune. He's ready for reintroduction. Uh, how are you doing, Shane? You have three kids. So, I mean, how's that going being teacher and, um, you know, consultant? This is insane. Um, and I, I don't even mean that it's awful because it's not awful. I, I think it's really great getting to spend more time with your kids. I've really enjoyed learning about what they're learning about. And it's very different. Like when you're trying to parent a child, you tell them what to do. And if they don't listen, you force them. Teaching is different, right? You have to be calm and you have to help them understand and you have to be patient. So that's but been cool, but it is hard doing my job. Like you don't have to be calm then? <laughs> well, no, but I mean, you know, if you tell your kids, you know, go to your room and they don't, that's a different conversation than trying to help them understand, you know, reading comprehension or something. So it's, it's been a trip, but, uh, Definitely burning the candle at both ends, which is why my voice sounds like it does. But uh, it's been it's been a lot, but it, it's rewarding in certain ways. How are you all doing? Yeah, I mean, I'm good. I've been working from home a lot for a while. So, you know, I've got a full set of pajamas to get me through the week. One for every day. All set on that front. <laughs> but seriously, yeah, my husband's working from home in a tiny 400 square foot apartment. So, you know an adjustment. Um, and the days, yeah, they're just starting to blend together. But I did remember that it is our former producer, Victoria Simon's birthday this week. So happy birthday, Victoria. I did drop off a COVID survival kit at her house from a socially acceptable distance that included wine, dehydrated food, uh, some seeds to grow, some some vegetables and some toilet paper. So she should be all set for a just a, a rocking birthday. <laughs> 
All right. Well, obviously, it's hard to get away from coronavirus. It has changed literally everything. All the discussions we have from the election to climate to just how one plans their life going forward. So we're going to double down and talk about it some more on this week's show. I want to start with an E&E News story. They ran an article this week with the headline, Does Climate Change Still Matter in the Election? And we've been thinking a lot about that, what this moment means for climate change and the energy transition and how to keep these issues relevant amid the current health crisis. Of course, there are a lot of ideas circulating around in the media, on social media, elsewhere. Uh, trade groups and environmental advocates have stepped up to lobby on Capitol Hill to try and get some tax credits for clean energy technologies. But as many people will know, the $2 trillion stimulus bill that was passed by Congress did not offer any relief for the energy sector. Uh, public transit did get some support, but proposals such as trading $3 billion in oil purchases to fill up the strategic reserve for clean energy tax credits, that kind of proposal did not go through. Meanwhile, I want to note climate has not gone away. In recent days, new research came out showing that the polar ice caps are melting six times faster than in the 1990s. But of course, all that gets lost amid the coronavirus scare. So arguably, it's reasonable to focus on the crisis at hand. But when and how do you guys think climate and clean energy will reinsert itself into the discussion here? When will it become part of the policymaking conversation? And if it does, how do you think that's going to play out? So, Brandon, I want to start with you. How are you thinking about the confluence of these two issues? Is climate getting drowned out or is there an opportunity here to actually put it back on the agenda in a bigger way? I think the way it will affect the politics and campaign will be what have we learned from this and how does it affect uh, the voters view of these candidates? So big things that are related to covid and, you know, and, and climate are. What kind of manager are you? Do you rely on experts or not? What do you think is the role of government? Do you plan, you know, for uh, these crises and how do you manage during it? What is the role of energy in this recovery and creating new jobs that we're going to need after all the jobs that have been lost recently? So I think those are the type of things that we'll see voters thinking about. And I have a lot of thoughts on each of those and yeah. what those contrasts are <laughs> we'll when you're ready more. to have that discussion. I, I think you make an interesting point there, though, to start off that, you know, the discussion now is really around leadership and how climate related solutions can fit into the broader coronavirus recovery. Uh, I'm not seeing so much political discussion right now around emissions reductions or whether or not climate change is real or other debates of the past. Now it's really about whether policymakers will support clean energy companies uh, and even more so whether they'll adopt new measures proposed under the Green New Deal to shore up employment and view that as a way to reboot the economy. Or if lawmakers will decide they need to shore up traditional businesses first, like fossil fuel businesses that are currently getting crushed by low oil prices, and then you know stay away from bold new policies. Or perhaps it'll be a mixture of both. But I think that is very you know topical right now in the political scene. Uh, Shane, what are your initial thoughts on how climate and COVID are interacting right now? I want to say like for the first time I can remember, and I'm, I'm not including Twitter in this, um, I'm like proud of everyone who comments on this stuff. I haven't seen nearly as much hyperbole as I'm used to. I haven't seen nearly as much dire rhetoric as I expected. I think people are being pretty sober about this, you know, thinking about a couple things. One is everyone, whether you're very liberal or very conservative, understands that our infrastructure, you know, writ large is in need of massive amounts of investment. And of course, Past discussions have been focused on cost and this and that and the third. 
My hope is, and I'm optimistic that people understand that energy infrastructure is a big part of this. Now, when you talk about climate, maybe people get upset on the right, but when you talk about modernizing infrastructure and investing in the future, no one can be against that. And so what I'm hopeful about is that because there hasn't been a lot of hyperbole, because you know the Green New Deal messaging snuck into the phase three deal because people were fighting over, you know, as you said, the SPR and other, and other tax credits, but I'm actually kind of hopeful that two things will happen here. <clears throat> and I want to hear what Brandon has to say on each because I have a lot to say too. You know, one is that I think people do understand that money has become less of an issue. We're going to invest in our economy to, to get out of this. Um, I think that people understand that modern infrastructure is important and that lends itself really nicely to dealing with climate too. Although just to say it's crazy that we have to have a massive crisis where hundreds of thousands of people could die or at least tens of thousands to be like, oh, maybe we should invest in our electricity system. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm not saying it's, it's that cut and dry, right? But I think people just spent $2 trillion. They can't now look look back in a week and say, we don't spend money. That's not what we do here in Washington. And the, the other piece of it is, I do think where climate and COVID are very, very similar, and there's a lot of ways they're not, is that there are probably ways, and I don't know much about you know the coronavirus, obviously, and I don't know much about the medical field, but there are probably ways that you could have invested a lot a long time ago and made dealing with this challenge far, far simpler. I can't say that for a fact. I'm not a doctor, but I imagine there were. Climate is similar where the day-to-day experiences we have, you know, probably some of it's bad because of climate, especially in island nations and stuff like that. But for the most part, I don't think we really realize it as the average person on a day-to-day basis. But what we now understand is that if you let something like this come along and hit you before you're prepared, then the costs and the challenges can be monumental and maybe even insurmountable. And so I'm hoping that people start to think, we can invest $2 trillion over the next 20 years and solve this problem rather than $4 trillion in a matter of a week and just, you know, run around with our, uh, with our heads, uh, you know, falling off. So th- that, that's sort of my early thoughts. But I want to have a discussion because I'm guessing uh, we're not all on the same page here. Yeah, I mean, that all sounds reasonable. Uh, but we had behavioral scientist uh, Shweta Chakraborty on recently, and she talked about the human reaction to sea snake run, where we, you know, despite our better judgment, get caught up in the moment and can't necessarily think strategically. So I didn't agree with all of her points, but I do think it could be hard for lawmakers to take that step back and really think years ahead. I know there's a robust discussion happening right now on Capitol Hill about infrastructure investing. It's happening across the aisle, and that really could get some traction. But I think it could take some real ninja policymaking to get it done. And next is the other piece that this has become politicized. Again, we talked with Shweta about how people are kind of reverting back to tribal identities uh, around coronavirus like they do around climate change because it taps into other perceptions of the world and what they think the economy should look like and society should look like. So those issues haven't necessarily gone away. Yeah, I think ultimately a big factor in who people vote for comes down to trust. Do I trust this person? And part of that will be... Both Trump and Biden will run on their record. Biden trusted experts. You can see it in the way that we dealt with H1N1 Ebola. And you can see from Trump's record that he will have to own on this, that we lost a month because of him. He, Do you think that will really resonate? Because I know there's a lot of great reporting on how this all went down, the blow by blow of what the Trump administration did, when, how they communicated it. But is the average American who's just spending more time babysitting their kids right now going to ever read those articles? And will they care? I think it will be a major part of the general election. We're not there yet. Right now, people are suffering. They're scared. Um, and the focus is on 
uh, disaster relief right now. And so, but, w- but when the general election kicks into gear, we're not even really done with the primary yet. Oh my God, remember the primary? Is there still a primary? Talk about climate getting lost in the election. The election's getting lost amid coronavirus. Uh, you know, th- the Democrats will make this an issue and they should because you, you do have to own your record. And it is a question of trust. Can we trust Donald Trump to run this country when they committed like abject malpractice that caused a lot of this, we could have avoided a lot of this suffering and economic catastrophe uh, if they had been up to the job, which they were clearly not. To bring this back to climate and what we need to learn from this is you look at Dr. Fauci on TV, everybody's seen him. There are so many Dr. Fauci's in the federal government that work on climate. That, they, that don't get the recognition that they deserve. And in Republican administrations, do not get the support that they deserve and the role in government that we need them to have to avoid these catastrophes. There are people looking at satellite data from NOAA satellites on climate. That work needs to be elevated. Those people need to be supported. Democrats have tried to do that with their budgets. Um, if you look at what Trump proposed in February on the CDC, he proposed cutting the budget of the CDC last month. This is the kind of contrast we're talking about. We need to elevate these experts and trust them on climate. Scientists are not infallible, neither are the experts, but they've been very consistent. Tens of thousands of scientists for decades have been warning us, and they're saying we're still not doing enough, and the evidence has proved that to be true. So we need to support these you know, these experts and scientists in the government, and we need to trust them and allow them to do their job. The second thing is on the economic recovery, which I agree with Shane, we need to get, uh, you know, this economy moving again when, when it's healthy and safe to do that. And, and energy and climate can be a big part of that. Uh, there's things that we did in the Obama stimulus program that worked really, really well. Biden was a big part of that. He oversaw it. I was in a weekly meeting with him every single week in the White House where we went over the Recovery Act, how the money was getting out. He would make phone calls to governors. He would sit there with, you know, with staff and make phone calls to governors. He didn't care if you said nice things about him or not. He called you and said, are you getting the help you need? Is this money moving? What can we do to be, to be a resource for you? That's the kind of leadership we need on climate in this country. That's what we need out of our political leaders. And it is a direct contrast to what's happening right now. Uh, with a couple of caveats, Brandon and I actually agree more than I would have imagined. One thing that I think is really great about this, and, and I don't mean that this is great, of course, but one thing that's coming out of this is the reemergence of trust in scientists to handle issues that we don't, the average person doesn't fully understand. And so I do think it's kind of cool to see political leaders say, our goal is to keep, you know, human life as safe as possible and concurrently to open the economy up as soon as possible. And we don't really know what that looks like. And so to, you know, elevate scientists who have been studying this their whole lives, I think is encouraging. And I agree with Brandon that there can be some crossover into the climate space once people sort of renormalize the idea of really taking, you know, expert and scientist input in formulating public policy, uh, that can be nothing but positive in climate for sure, but in several other spaces. Um, I think, you know, CDC and the budget, I, I don't necessarily buy that. I mean, I remember the year before the Flint crisis, uh, Obama zeroed out the Safe Drinking Water Act fund. Now, of course, he didn't want that zeroed out. Budgets are tricky things. You're trying to message your priorities and you find savings in weird places. And so I don't, I don't necessarily look to the president's budget document as, 
as um, as you know indicative of, of whether or not he was planning for this. Uh, but you know, I do agree that that trusting scientists again is important. Uh, where Brandon talks about uh, Vice President Biden, I don't know anything about Vice President Biden. I do know that this doesn't seem good for him insofar as that in a presidential election year, most of the time at this point, people wouldn't be talking about anything other than the election and, you know, whatever sort of small news items come up day to day, watching anyone, and I'm not, I'm not making fun of the vice president, this could be anyone, um, sit in their basement uh, compared to the president of the United States with all the trappings that comes with, the optics are not very good for Vice President Biden. And I don't know how he tries to overcome that as this election moves forward if we're stuck at home for long periods of time. Well, first of all, he's going to have to compete with political climate with this new co- with this new podcast. I know. I mean, so. should we? I mean, they're probably aware of us, so no need to tell them about that. Um, well, another element here on on the politics before we move to what uh, climate oriented uh, stimulus could look like. And that is that the administration, uh, the U.S. EPA, suspended the enforcement of environmental laws during this crisis. They said that companies will not face any ramifications for polluting the air or water. And they didn't set a timeline for this, mind you. So this is um, uh, unclear how long the EPA will effectively be standing down and ignoring some of these environmental laws. And so I want to put this in context. Shane, can you explain you know, why the EPA would take a move like this? Well, I actually want to, and I'm glad you went to me first. I want to sort of pose a question to Brandon rather than explain, because my understanding and my memory from Hurricane Sandy was that there were a lot of these waivers put in place to allow people to do the things they needed to do in times of emergency with limited resources and a need to act quickly. Now, I am not in any way, shape, or form arguing that the specific regulations that EPA uh, is waiving uh, are, are pertinent to that. I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I actually wanted to hear from Brandon. When you're in an administration, and DOE specifically is, is what it was in Sandy, what are you looking at insofar as Obviously, you think these regulations that are in place are necessary or they wouldn't exist. So what is it about a crisis that makes an administration just start waving a bunch of stuff like hours of service for truckers? That's obvious. You got to move supplies. But some of this other stuff is a little bit more obscure. So to be clear, I'm not arguing EPA should do what they're doing. I'm saying I genuinely don't know and I don't understand exactly how this all works from an administrative perspective. And can I add on why suspend existing clean air and water rules rather than, you know, obviously maybe pause any new regulation making or anything if that were happening. But I mean, if this is already common practice, why do you need to change it? Brandon? I mean, I had a front row seat to several government crises, the BP oil spill, Fukushima and Hurricane Sandy. I can tell you that mobilizing an entity as vast and complex as the United States government is a challenge. Um, It was very hard and it was like we were working around the clock. Um, I will never forget on uh, Hurricane Sandy, the President Obama looked at Secretary Chu and I and he said, the world is watching. I will be judged by my response and you guys better get that power up. Uh, He also said, I don't want to hear about any red tape. I don't want to hear. So in that red tape, you do look at these situations like we had the Jones Act and there was people could not get gasoline because the oil refineries were down. And so uh, getting that fuel to the Northeast 
uh, became a real challenge. Uh, we didn't want to have people unable to get gasoline for their car. And so we waived the Jones Act, which is a requirement that you have to transport on a U.S. flagged ship. So I think in these times of crisis, uh, good leadership means getting people working together. That seems together. different than pulling back on public health regulations in the middle of a public health crisis. I mean, I think a lot of people are saying that this is unprecedented. At least Cynthia Giles, who used to head up the EPA, uh, EPA enforcement during Obama administration, says that the EPA has never relinquished a fundamental authority such as this. So it sounds like the Jones Act would be something different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we looked at how can we relieve um, pain and make things easier for the American people during these crises. Um, and also give them like safety and security. So uh, during Fukushima, relying on the science experts uh, to be front and center as a part of like whether people were safe or not. That's another sort of contrast. And, you know, for people that want the American government to run like a business, just like any other business, you have to staff it. You have to have experts in it. It can't be a test of just loyalty. Did you say nice things about the leader of the organization? It has to be built on expertise. And you can't just turn a business on and off. You have to invest in it. And this is like when you have a crisis happen, it's already hard enough, even with the most sophisticated, best, most talented people. But if you don't, if you if you operate the government the way that these guys have operated it, it's this is what you get. And I hope we learn from this because this is what you get. This is what you voted for. I think Brandon just said he's going back to D.C. and he's going to save it. <laughs> no, remember Trump was the one who said, I'm the only one. I don't believe in that. I believe that you have to have a really strong team and you have to constantly invest in this and you have to uh, recruit really talented people and you have to trust them. Uh, that is not the way Republicans have been operating the government. And we're going to go through it again on climate if we don't learn from this. I'm extrapolating that to the podcast. I'm assuming you hang out with Shane and I because we are those talented people that you're talking yes. about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to hear that Shane, to be clear, I'm happy to hear that Shane wants to elevate experts and scientists and believes, I, we all know he believes in climate change. That is, you know, a, a brave stance, unfortunately, in the Republican Party. Right. Well, one last thing on the EPA, because it's timely, is that the Trump administration has finalized uh, the rollback of the corporate average fuel economy standards, the clean car standards. Uh, this would effectively freeze them around 2021 levels. They increase moderately to around 40 miles per gallon on average for new for new vehicles. The Obama administration would have increased that to around 56, 57 uh, miles per gallon in 2026. Uh, and so some people have said this timing is really bad in the sense that you want to be putting your automakers back to work, uh, building newer, efficient and electric vehicle technologies to you know serve the markets of tomorrow as we come out of this economic downturn. But but not only that, there's a national security element. Uh, oil prices are at recent record lows. And that's having major implications for the global economy. That prompted Jason Bordoff at Columbia University to tweet, quote, at exactly the moment when a historic oil price collapse that is causing widespread economic pain in the U.S. should remind us that true energy security comes from not how much we produce and export oil, but from reducing oil intensity of the economy, Trump goes backward. So any quick thoughts on this before we move on? I just I want to say two things. One, even without this pandemic, what's going on between Russia and Saudi Arabia and the oil markets would have huge impact here on and on those jobs. As we think about oil in the U.S. was below twenty dollars or around twenty dollars a barrel in recent days, which is like 
yeah, decades. It's a price war. If yeah. you've been watching Curb Your Enthusiasm this season and Latte Larry's versus Mocha Joe's and they have the price war, that's what's going on <laughs> between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Right, with a lot of job layoffs <laughs> with, to come yes. from American oil and so, gas. So if when we think about the stimulus and economic recovery and what jobs we want to invest in, the clean energy jobs are the jobs that can be permanent, that aren't dependent on other countries. We can make these products here. We can install them here. And then we can sell them to the rest of the world because the rest of the world is going to need these products for many decades. And the second point I want to make, too, just on we talked about Hurricane Sandy earlier, just a point just to educate our listeners about the power of the federal government and how you can marshal it to do really extraordinary things in these crises. There were in getting that power back up, we did not have enough picker trucks and whatnot from the utilities in the Northeast. They needed more. So we mobilized the military to transport picker trucks and other equipment from utilities around the rest of the country into the Northeast. So we had utilities offering up, we have this that we can send, you know, to the Northeast. We had military planes and car, you know, picking those, that equipment up and, and, and getting it to the places where we need competent leaders can mobilize. Like we're, we don't have ventilators. Trump was late. His administration was late on that, and he could have been mobilizing the private sector earlier well, to Now he's only forcing General Motors to make them and no other automakers, which seems like it's actually yeah, stemming it back to the efficiency to rules. A state depending on politics. Florida's getting everything they need. Not Michigan. Not New York. Shane, any quick comments on fuel economy? I've been clear on this show before that I really don't understand why they took actions that would reduce the incentive to produce, you know, more EVs, especially when you look at some of the challenges our, our utilities are having right now. It's low demand, but also load shifting. And so, I, you know, I'm hopeful that we'll see some some smart investment investment in modern infrastructure. And I would have liked to seen the administration uh, put forth rules that that were more supportive of EVs. And however, that that factors into fuel economy would, would have been just fine with me. Oil prices are so strange because when they're high, everyone's angry. And when they're low, everyone's angry. So I don't quite get that. <clears throat> but um, but I do agree that that better uh, fuel efficiency standards, especially ones that allow you to counter, there is a, a hungry demand for SUVs in our country. And so countering that with a lot of EVs, I think, would be helpful for our economy, for our electric sector, um, for our reducing oil and gas consumption, and for consumers, frankly. Yeah, well, I've heard that, uh, you know, the EV outlook due to all these combined factors of the immediately the, of the immediate supply chain issues due to coronavirus, then following the you know economic downturn we're expecting and consumer behavior changing, and now the rollback of these fuel efficiency standards for years to come, it's just going to be potentially a huge hit to EVs following a year where EV sales were down last year relative to 2018. So, We'll have to see how this market unfolds, but it does look uh, like it's going to be a bumpy road, to say the least. Still the maintenance savings on EVs that, in many cases, the total cost of ownership is still less, even if fuel prices are low. True. Uh, I think that proponents will just have to double down on making that economic case. And frankly, the U.S. has to decide if it wants to double down on making EVs. Uh, by mass producing them, it would break down costs and could promote more adoption. And it could be part of an economic recovery by creating jobs and really putting the U.S. ahead in this new uh, technology area. So let's turn now to a discussion about what a green stimulus could look like after a quick message from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you with support from EarthX, a nonprofit environmental forum that aims to educate and inspire action toward a more sustainable future. 
EarthX 2020, in partnership with the National Geographic Society, is now going to be held virtually from April 22nd to the 27th to mark the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. In light of the rapidly developing news around the coronavirus, as well as CDC guidelines and City of Dallas requirements, EarthX will now host its conference and film festival all online. That means you can watch and participate from wherever you are. Head to earthx.org for more information. Once there, you can also sign up for the EarthX League, a network of people working to create a more sustainable world. Building a better future isn't canceled, so head to earthx.org for more. Okay, let's talk about a green stimulus bill or a stimulus bill with some green elements in it. So lots of ideas have been floating around about how to take advantage of this moment. Uh, The U.S. renewable energy, energy storage, efficiency, and EV industries are urging Congress to extend their tax breaks and offer other kinds of support. We should know that these industries, like a lot of companies in the U.S., have been negatively affected by the virus itself. Their supply chains have been disrupted. You know, you can't build a car with 99% of the parts. You need all of them there. So these big EV plans that General Motors and others uh, had, you know, they're going to have to be delayed at the very least, even if they do come back. Um, There's also other ideas from climate and clean energy advocates that are more comprehensive, things like boosting federal funding for sustainable infrastructure, weatherization assistance programs, uh, things like even calling for strengthening organic food standards and reforming agricultural subsidies, creating a fund to support worker cooperatives that are aligned with decarbonization, and things like implementing a green foreign policy. And we'll link to a Medium post that outlines a lot of those, those, a lot of the, the proposals that advocates have put together. So just how far do you guys think think this green stimulus idea should go. And I'll couch it again, the fact that we had some labor union representatives on last week who talked about, you know, there is an opportunity for a green economy, but we have to make sure that the blue economy is strong first, meaning things like paid time off, health care, pensions, things that are also being, you know, shown how strained those systems are during this current crisis. Um, and they're also just trying to keep the lights on. So some workers are even living on site at water and power plants right now because they can't go home so that they can make sure they're not infected and can ensure that we have all the resources that we need. So how do you balance these things? When does green come into the conversation and just how big and bold should those ideas be in this moment? What's what's realistic to think could get done? Shane, let's start with you. Sure. So I think a lot can get done. And the first thing I would say is let's not call it green stimulus. Let's call it stimulus to modernize the U.S. economy, because, you know, Mitch McConnell has been very clear that he's he's game to uh, negotiate an infrastructure package. He has been trying to preempt, you know, Nancy Pelosi by saying this isn't an opportunity to dust off the Green New Deal. This is an opportunity to achieve other progressive priorities. But the thing is, it's all the same. If you invest in infrastructure that puts people back to work, and your investments are in the most modern infrastructure possible. In other words, infrastructure that doesn't lose its value in five or 10 years, that's going to end up being infrastructure that decarbonizes the economy. That's going to end up being infrastructure that makes our energy system smarter, our water system smarter. One thing that I'd love to see is a sustainability fund, a massive pot of money that has certain rules on it as far as what they need to, what these investments, you know, getting money from this fund need to do and meet insofar as sustainability objectives, because there's not a single Fortune 500 company in America at this point that hasn't made some sort of commitment to sustainability. So that's a place where I think, you know, Democrats and climate supporters and corporate America would be really supportive. Um, Wait, can you flesh guess, that out a little bit more? What, what would that mean? Like you would have a requirement that I know the airlines already got some federal support, but they would have to like boost 
you know, fuel efficiency or something like that as part of getting federal funds? Well, is that so what in you my mean view, or what would that look like? Let's really? say this pot of money is, you know, $100 billion. I'm making that up, but whatever it is. And it is literally called a sustainability fund, not a green fund, not a corporate bailout fund. Um, and so in your grant applications, you would have to highlight what your company's sustainability policies are, what process you use to put those policies in place, what steps you can take to achieve those policies, and what specific funding you need to, to make those investments. I think something like that would be really cool because it's a merger between corporate America and decarbonization. And frankly, anything that puts people back to work is going to be sorely, sorely needed after this. I really believe that. Interesting. Brandon, thoughts on that? I think it was interesting that Mitch McConnell and Trump accused the Democrats of injecting the Green New Deal into the phase three, phase three the which one. they did not. They tried to get some of the tax credits uh, as a trade-off for the buying the oil for the strategic petroleum oil reserve. But that means that they think they're on favorable political terrain to make that accusation. They're using that as like a hammer, the Green New Deal. Who's on favorable political terrain? Trump and McConnell, by by injecting the Green New Deal into that. And you did not see Pelosi or Democrats on the Hill stand up to it and, and defend it, defend the Green New Deal. So I am concerned about the brand of the Green New Deal on Capitol Hill, uh, even with Democrats. Um, Data for Progress has done some incredible polling on this, and there are people supporting many of those policies. But the brand of the Green New Deal amongst members of Congress is something that I think needs some work. I don't think people truly understand how it can serve as a jobs program. That is the entire thrust of the Green New Deal. And so when we think about how we're going to recover from this, um, I I hope that we look at some of those policies. And some of those policies that many progressives on the left are advocating for in the last several months that people thought were crazy may not seem so crazy now. Medicare for all, Mm -hmm. you know, even many Democrats, like, I mean, that was the big knock on Elizabeth Warren and took down her campaign. Well, guess what? When millions of people lose their job and get kicked off their health care now, how is Medicare for all going to sound? Maybe a little bit different for some people. So well, I in hope all fairness, that we can- Brandon, in all fairness, Medicare for all is Bernie's platform, too. It took down her campaign because she didn't acknowledge the truth about paying for it. He was very clear about that up front. True. True. I'm just saying that even amongst Democrats, Medicare for all, uh, there was skepticism within the Democratic Party about it. Yeah, I'm sure some people will say that that's typical Washington out of step with the public. Others may say that that's just where the American public's at. And uh, lawmakers are reflecting that. Democratic lawmakers are reflecting that just a more moderate stance. I agree with many of the things Shane said. I, I We need to rebuild this infrastructure. We should do it in a clean, sustainable way. And I hope we can find some bipartisan agreement. Sounds like, you know, Shane... Uh, is encouraging that people like Shane want to do that. And so maybe Democrats and Republicans can come together around some of this in this next round of stimulus. I was just making an observation as a Green New Deal advocate that it was sort of interesting to see that you didn't see Democrats rush to defend it on Capitol Hill. And right now there is an opportunity, I think. What are people doing? They're sitting at home watching news. (laughs) <laughs> like that, I mean, the, the news consumption right now amongst the average person is like at an all time high. People, people yeah. are looking for, you know, they're looking, they're paying attention to government in a way that they haven't in the past. Well, how far do you think a sustainability or green deal should go, Brandon? Because, you know, 
as an advocate for the Green New Deal itself, do things like, are things like worker cooperatives a good thing to insert in the conversation right now on Capitol Hill as they contemplate stimulus for? Is that the right time for it? Is that the right kind of proposal? And there are many others that have been outlined, which again, may be really good programs on the face, but do you think they have a place in the discussion right now amid a crisis? I think we need to get people back to work. And there's going to be a reshuffling here of the economy um, because a lot of people are uh, already laid off. There's going to be more. Um, Also, I think what this pandemic has exposed, again, is underneath the surface of the stock market, there were a lot of cracks in this economy that everybody said was roaring, was, you know, humming along. And what this showed is like people are one paycheck maybe two paychecks, a lot of people away from disaster. And a lot of these industries that had to get bailed out, you know, weren't sitting on sufficient cash reserves to be able to ride out, you know, uh, some short-term demand uh, collapse. And so they needed, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars from the federal government to rescue them. So that shows to me that the economy did have some Uh, cracks beneath the surface. And so as we think about rebuilding this economy, let's rebuild it in a durable, sustainable way that reduces wealth inequality and solves the next crisis, which is climate. I'm curious to see how this plays out, even with the immediate proposal that's been bandied about a little more frequently about trading um, the government purchasing of I think I saw $3 billion worth of oil for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve uh, in exchange for certain clean energy tax credits. Um, Rapidan, which is an, an, an oil an analysis firm, uh, they pointed out in a note recently that the DOE thinks that they have enough cash to purchase um, oil for the SPR and could maybe even avoid Congress. So if something like that is true, I, I just wonder how much leverage Democrats have to put in some green energy measures. Yeah, I, I don't know. It seems like from what I hear out of D.C. is that Um, At best, we're going to get the low-hanging fruit of some of these tax credit extensions, things like PTC, ITC, which people in the industry are very familiar with, production tax credit, investment tax credit, uh, 1603, which is the, you know, tax credit. uh, It's a cash grant in lieu of the tax credit. These are all very important things to the industry because right now deadlines are slipping with these projects. Right now, the tax equity market is drying up because um, the banks uh, or tax equity investors will not have the same balance sheet. Uh, so less of an appetite to monetize that that tax or design, you know ability to monetize that tax credit. So there's a low-hanging fruit that I think that's going to be a lot of the debate on Capitol Hill, things that Democrats have previously asked for. Um, I I don't know. I hope that there would be any appetite for more creative thinking on this, but it may not just be possible in this like urgent moment. Shane, can I ask you, do you think that this can be bipartisan, truly? You know, we're talking here about Democrats have advocated for this, Democrats have advocated for that. And it's true that the voting records show that Republicans don't usually vote for clean energy measures. But in this moment, it, you know, Republicans have an opportunity to really step up here and maybe put jobs in their districts and be a little more proactive on these issues. Do you think we're going to see that? I think we're going to see a big bipartisan bill. And there's a couple of reasons why. One, we just passed a two. But will it be a trade off or will Republicans genuinely want to support some of these measures or will it be like, give me some oil and gas you know, funding and then we'll play clean energy? Or will you see some genuine Republican support for clean energy jobs? I think we're going to see Washington be Washington. There's going to be horse trading. I mean, very few people know more about um, energy markets than Bob McNally at Rapidon, just for the record. So 
if he says something, I, I believe it. But also the SPR discussion is misguided. I don't think that's a tit for tat. If the U.S. is ever going to refill the SPR, and I'm not saying they are or aren't or should or shouldn't, but they are going to, um, then why not buy oil when it's $20 a barrel? That's just good for the U.S. taxpayer. So it doesn't really make that, – that whole argument doesn't really make a ton of sense. But do I think there are going to be Republicans out there saying, I'm going to stand – you know, I'm not voting for this bill unless it has – a lot of green infrastructure. I don't know that people are going to make that pronouncement publicly. I think we're going to see Washington be Washington. They just spent $2.2 trillion and got a 97 to zero vote in the Senate. People who didn't vote for it were home with the, with uh, either with the disease or being quarantined because they might have the disease. So I think we're going to see a return to the old days where all people's priorities are thrown out into the, the middle. They're discussed, um, they're explored, and the ones that look like they have some stimulative effect are going to be adopted. And the ones that don't probably aren't. There's probably going to be some help for fossil fuels in some way, shape, or form, or fossil fuel industries. There's going to be help for green industries. There's going to be help for the type of modern infrastructure that, in theory, could lend itself to either. I do think we're going to see a big bipartisan effort. And just because someone doesn't issue a press release saying, I only voted for a bill because it, it's a climate bill, it doesn't mean that they don't care about those things. It doesn't mean they're not fighting for their districts. And I agree with Brandon that tax equity markets are, are really important right now. I mean, tax credits and tax equity markets, frankly, are always important to monetize tax credits, but they're more important when the purpose of the bill is to be stimulative rather than when it's just a tax bill. So um, I'm optimistic that we'll see a lot of those things. I'm optimistic, uh, it sounds like Brandon's not, that we'll see some of the more creative sort of outside the box thinking, because when you're spending trillions of dollars and you need agreement from a wide range of stakeholders, I think you need to get a little bit creative. And, and I's hoping that, that uh, we can be part of some of those discussions, but I'm happy to I guess I'm very optimistic that we'll see a bipartisan <laughs> bill and people will grumble because people grumble. But I, I, I think we can do some really cool things for the economy, some really cool things for our infrastructure and some really good things for the environment and climate in this bill. By the way, just beyond like the stimulus uh, talk, the DOE, you know, we're talking about they have the money to buy the SPRO. They're sitting on tens of billions of dollars in authority for the DOE loan program, which was a, you know, a big success. They could get that money moving too. Yeah. Yeah. They still haven't spent it from the Obama era. Yeah. Well, all right. There was a little bit of a kumbaya moment there. We'll see how it plays out. I mean, to sort of end on a tense note, you know, a recent piece in Wired talked about how, you know, Trump's reaction to coronavirus, you know, taking a strong stance, then pulling back has kind of mirrored the way things have played out in the past on climate. Uh, there was a quote in this story saying, first one denies the problem, then one denies its severity, then one says it's too difficult or too expensive to fix and or the proposed solution threatens our freedom. So and then lie about everything you said in the past. <laughs> We'll see if we can overcome the the politics of the day to see the policies that I think a lot of people, at least according to you guys, on both sides of the aisle want to see. Now, to wrap up our show, we're going to forego our typical Say Something Nice segment where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts say something redeeming about the opposing political party and instead have them share some survival tips on how to get through this crisis. I sort of left this as an open question, so your responses could be personal, professional, uh, it can be targeted to clean tech companies or, you know, all the above. So, uh, Shane, let's go to you first. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about this so I can stay sane here. Um, my best tips, or at least the things that have helped me the most, are stay active. Um, it's easy to feel like that, you know, you should be a couch potato or catch up on Netflix or all those sorts of things because it's such a weird time. But there are ways to be active without, you know, violating social distancing rules. Behave as though your life is normal. And I don't mean hang out with all your friends and spread the disease. I mean, 
get up, take a shower, shave, get dressed. I just mean, do do the things that you would do as if you were going to work, even though you're not leaving the house. Because there is a malaise to, you know, sitting in your pajamas, at least there is for me all day. But if I get up, shower, shave, you know, get ready to quote unquote, go to work, that that really helps. Uh, finish tasks around the house. A buddy of mine told me that he read this from a from a, a psychologist, but that leaving things unfinished creates anxiety, but people do that when they're busy. But when you're home, you can feel a sense of achievement and, and you know, keep calm if you feel like you're getting things done, accomplishing tasks. And then also drink a little bit or whatever you do for fun, indulge your hobbies, not in unhealthy ways, not in negative ways, but understand that as bad as this is, you're getting unique time at home, whether it's with your family, whether it's with your hobbies, whether it's you know, to read books, whatever it is that you like to do, um, enjoy that a little bit. Try to take advantage of the extra time you're not spending in your commute. Read, learn about things you're interested in, become a better citizen, a better voter, whatever, understand things more clearly and re-up your investment in your family. Again, whether you have kids or whether you're, you know, a, you're someone else's kid or brother, sister, this is a good time to catch up with people that you kind of wish you caught, kept up with more, but you just don't have time. Uh, for me, it's spending time with my kids, building train tracks, building towers, a lot of the stuff we used to do that I don't have time to do anymore or catching up with my mom or dad or whatever. So those things have worked really well for me. And I hope people are finding ways to, to feel good about being home. I finally cleaned out a closet and got rid of all the paraphernalia from my bachelorette party in 2017. So that was really, you know, refreshing to do. Uh, Brandon, what are your survival tips amid COVID? So you guys were on the personal uh, front. I, I had some for clean energy stakeholders. Uh, so first of all, if you're a utility, um, as Shane just mentioned, uh, you know, there's going to be a massive infrastructure debate on Capitol Hill uh, and utilities should engage in that. <laughs> I mean, this is an opportunity to sort of lead the clean energy revolution, clean up the grid, electrify everything um, that can be a part of this debate. And so I would get engaged with uh, the federal government now. This is going to happen fast for the next couple of weeks uh, on advocacy. Um, I think, you know, we're talking about the Green New Deal brand right now. People are paying attention, paying attention to news, paying attention to government. Uh, this is an opportunity for the advocacy community to like, uh, get out there and explain how this can be a jobs program, explain the, the problems that, uh, these proposals can solve. Uh, so I think this is a moment where they need to, uh, be really engaged as well. If you're a startup, a clean energy startup, I happen to be on the board of a couple of them. And so in real time, we're dealing with um, the impacts of COVID. There are incredible programs that were passed in the uh, phase three uh, CARES Act, the $2.2 trillion bill that we've been referencing. If you're a clean energy startup, there are two uh, provisions, you know, that are or two different programs at the Small Business Administration that are particularly relevant for you. There is an, um, it's called the, economic injury disaster loan, which is up to $2 million. And then there is uh, what they call the paycheck protection program. And that's $350 billion uh, in that um, bill in the CARES Act that was just passed. And what that basically does is you take your payroll and your mortgage or rent um, and some other expenses like utilities, and you come up with an average monthly cost and you multiply that by a number and then that's what you're eligible for on the loan amount, up to $10 million. And then the great part is the, the U.S. government will forgive um, 
the paycheck part of that loan if you keep people employed for eight weeks. So if you got a loan for, you know, eight, you know, $5 million and 4 million of that was like your paycheck for the next couple, you know, eight weeks that you would only have to pay back $1 million of that. Uh, so, uh, if you're, but you have to pay attention if you're a clean energy startup to what's called the affiliation rules uh, in that uh, paycheck protection program. Because if you are owned by venture capital or private equity, um, they roll up all of the companies in their portfolio, and then you may be too large to be considered for the loan. So that is something to pay, pay attention to. And then I just think for um, uh, voters generally, like uh, you're seeing in real time the importance of the federal government. And there's a big election here in November, and you should seek out information. That is your civic duty. Seek it out from trusted sources. Go more than one layer deep. Go beyond the existing resources that you use for information. Like Shane always talks about how he hears, you know, he hears about this stuff from the first time. You know, the media is doing, uh, uh, they're trying to do the best job they can in getting this information out there. Pay attention to what's propaganda and pay attention to what are facts and then get active because this election really matters. All right. Yeah. And so when you're done with Biden's podcast, just come on right back here. Hang with us. Obviously, we got all the info you need. And Pearl Jam was on Bill Simmons podcast. So jealous. Oh, We'll get them next time. <laughs> All right. Speaking of next time, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, we will be back again next week. So tune in then. We are on all the podcasting platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, tune in, all the above. And you can find us on Twitter at Polly underscore climate. We'll leave it there for now. Thanks again. Goodbye.